Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Another episode of listener questions, nine of them, which seems like a little bit of a rush, but even more in the queue. But it's uh, nice to deal with them. I, I like doing podcasts that are responsive to what's going on in the industry, whether it's reminiscing about the past or predicting the future or just dealing with a, with a current topic. Uh, but your questions, keep them coming, and I will try to address those because that's definitely on point for at least the person that asked the question. So thanks, sponsors, Panini, Upper Deck, and Tops. Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsey.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. First question from Tim said, enjoy your show, but could you please explain where your song that introduces your podcast comes from and the story behind it? I've told it before, but I will reiterate, my wife picked it out. I was... Uh, no frills uh, podcast guy. And she said, you really need podcast music. And I said, I don't even know where to begin to get original music or find something. And she said, let me look into it. And she's extremely resourceful, very sharp. So she comes up like later in the day, I think, and says, here's the man in the house of cards. It's by Lost European. And it's available for, I think, $25 to have lifetime unlimited use. Now I'm using the first uh, 10 seconds or so of the intro and the last uh, 20 seconds of the song. In the middle, it's about a four-minute song. And I, I know there are some podcasts that have very long intros or outros, but again, I'm trying to be efficient, keep it simple, but uh, it's added a nice touch and the man in the house of cards is indeed doing all right. Second one, and I'm going to pair these off. It's really one question or comment. It was from uh, a young man and a young woman. Maybe they're not quite that young, but they are the descendants, the, the daughter and the grandson of Mike Galella, who was just a terrific guy that we did a tribute to, Rich and I, back uh, a couple of years ago. And so maybe when you're Googling your grandfather or your father, and it's in the title of the podcast, and so I'm so delighted that it came up, that they found it, they got to listen to it, and they heard some nice memories of it. One of my favorite guys, he said he was a good man with a great heart, absolutely. And he took his daughter and <laughs> to the shows, which is uh, always a cool thing. So at any rate, he's been passed for 10 years, but it's nice to know that uh, when people are gone, they're, they're not forgotten. He was a kind man, and uh, as as uh, John Newman and Danny Black say, real mensch. Um, third one, this is from the Cross-Up Collector, and I don't know if he's outside the United States, but he, he says, I wish I was in the U.S. to get my Beckett basketball issue number one signed. I'm not sure what to say, Mr. Cross-Up, because I don't think I'm going to do international shipping, but there are services that provide that. And I will be at the national and I'm at the Dallas show. So I'm happy to sign the cost won't be me charging you anything, uh, but the postage getting it uh, in or out of the U S uh, I don't keep a bunch of back issues here for me to sign one and send it to you. But if you have one and you give it to somebody that's going to be at the national, I will be happy to sign it and uh, put anything you want on it. So I'm, I'm always honored when people ask me about that. But it is a dilemma for people that live outside the country. And then Beansball Card Blog Ken is just still trying to figure out who the bad guy is that's the hated person in the hobby. And he just keeps thinking it's Michael Vick because he's such an animal lover. Ken, it is not Michael Vick, but I understand if you're an animal person or a dog lover, uh, Michael Vick, Vick is not your favorite. Okay, And then one more from uh, Ken. 
And he had mentioned before about reading Dave Dravecki's book. And he says he doesn't really like to read, but if he did read, he'd love to read a book that I would write. And Ken, unfortunately, or fortunately, I have written a bunch of books. They're mainly price guides and numbers, although there's still a lot of valuable information in the annual almanacs and guides that that are out there. But now my book form is podcast. They are essentially an audiobook, and I am sorry about that. Maybe at some time will be transcribed. But the information I want to share, you know, I've said, if I were doing a book, I'd still be working on chapter one and doing edits. Uh, but with a daily podcast, you just knock it out there and then are stimulated by the guests and the topics that come up. Then Ken was also asking about, because I'd just done the, the Megabid episode uh, a few days ago. And basically... He says, is the difference between a bid and a megabid intention to pay? That is the problem with a megabid is you can make a megabid if you intend to pay and you can make a regular bid if you intend to pay. You should intend to pay if you make a bid. If you win, you should pay. Okay. But a megabid is an extreme bid that's assuming that no one will go that high and you won't even have to go that high. So you do intend to pay, but you don't intend to pay the full amount. And that's what happened here. If you have a mega bid, which is double or triple what it's worth, and you win, you get a sinking feeling. Now I have to pay. Or if you don't pay, and that's what happens in a lot of these shill situations, they want to bid it up, but they don't want to buy it. They don't want to pay. And so they either want to renege or come up with some special circumstance where they have to pay because really they were not interested. So anybody that's bidding without intention to pay, Ken, is that, that's just not right. So you, you, you could make a mega bid and people have won mega bids and been happy. They paid triple what it's worth. And, and that could be 30000 instead of 10000 not just 3000 instead of 1000 But it's a free world, and if you want to spend your money that way. But as I mentioned in the episode, it's contributed to the pretty significant increases in prices for some of these grail cards. Uh, next from Stooks. I met Stooks at the Dallas show, and he writes in occasionally. And he was mentioning that he had some magazines that he got on eBay, and people were bidding them up, and then they wouldn't pay when they won. So he blocked the bidders. Again, you can block some bidders, but it's whack-a-mole on some of these things because people can get additional identities. Some of the people talk about being nervous when you get bids from eBay, people with no zero feedback. They're newbies and may not even be perhaps even a real person. Another one from my friend John Keating, that 70s card show about the mega. He's also lamenting the situation here in this particular situation that I wasn't going to out. But a guy who he believes should have had enough liquidity to bite the bullet, make the purchase, even if it was with a credit card. Again, sometimes in the heat of the moment, people make bad decisions. I think that was a bad decision. I don't think he's necessarily a bad actor, but sometimes good people do bad things or dumb things. So I think that was not great. Uh, Greg's Adventure, commenting on a previous uh, listener question. Uh, great question, Greg. Which human being do you think signed the most autographs in the history of the world? <laughs> he thinks it's uh, Pete Rose or Bob Feller or Richard Petty. I think the edge is going to go to Pete Rose because he keeps going. He's Charlie Hustle, after all. And Bob Feller is resting in peace. But that would be a nice conversation for Rich Klein and me to bat around. So I'm suggesting it's Pete Rose over Bob Feller and Richard Petty. I don't know about that because I think he signed in a different context, NASCAR, the availability of drivers and his longevity. So can't speak to that, but I wouldn't bet against Pete Rose, especially if you told Pete Rose, 
there was a challenge that, that he could bet on it. So he's a betting man. And then lastly, the comment uh, that I got on the cashless episode that Rich and I talked about with what's going to happen if people should have to take your money. You can't say, I'm not accepting cash. It turns out, and I got a couple of comments on this, is that you are in a situation where you don't have to accept cash if you're just a vendor. If you're a bank or if you're repaying a debt or some other legal tender, they have to accept pennies or dollars or whatever. They have to accept cash, but they don't. But a vendor does not have to, ex- to accept cash uh, from you. They can insist on something else. But the other thing that came up when we touched on this is the whole situation about how this could flip. If we get futuristic and talk about in five or 10 years, cash is going out. There's a situation where it may be that people don't want it. When I go to, to the show, I don't take a whole lot of money, but I mainly deal with cash. And it's hundreds of dollars, not thousands of dollars. But $100 bills are one of the most counterfeited and fake bills out there. And it could be. And I, I've been to shows where I give them my $100 bill for my $100 box cards or whatever it is. And they take out the special pen, the little felt tip pen that they line through it to see, to make sure that it passes the test. Now, from what I have read, less than one hundredth of one percent of currency is counterfeit. But that means if there were 10,000 people walking in to the card show, to the national, and they each had a $100 bill, then that would suggest that one of those 10,000 is counterfeit. And uh, with people overreacting, perhaps, they may say, if, if there's even one counterfeit here, I don't want to accept that. Uh, I'm no longer going to accept cash. And $100 bills are the most faked, although there are some situations where 20s are faked because they're not as much money. But overseas, I think, is when they're dealing with hundreds or if you're looking at situations where a lot of cash is involved, it's a pretty big stack (laughs) if it's 20s. Hundreds is still a big stack if it's $10,000 and all that. I'm not concerned that much about the U.S. dollar being the the reserve currency for the world. I hope that continues. And I hope they have enough anti-counterfeit measures because, as we discussed in the episode, um, even though people don't have to take it, in this hobby, there's a preference to take it because you have some flexibility to how you want to report it. I think the IRS is going to get more and more sophisticated, as we mentioned. But still, cash is more difficult to trace than some of the other digital forms or credit cards and things like that, even checks. And the $10,000 rule of uh, withdrawals or transactions, that, that those are reported. I don't know if that's hit uh, if you do a cash transaction of 10000 or more, uh, I, I would bet the IRS would be in, uh, interested in that. So anyway, that's nine more questions. I uh, hope you had a, a great Thanksgiving, and I will be back again in a couple of days with another uh, episode. In fact, I think it's time for my uh, recap. Thanks, everybody. Uh, a lot to be thankful for here, as I mentioned in my special Thanksgiving episode. I'm really thankful for my brother. Uh, among other things, I'm thankful for my wife and the rest of my family, too. But it just was his birthday. So thanks, everybody. 